Killing Type, a novel by Wayne Jones, Chapter 18. Someone, somewhere, at some time, has touted the value of travel as a source of not only relief from the daily hardships and stresses of one's regular life, but also rejuvenation, revitalization, something to make one come alive again outside of this dead and dying town. I feel engulfed in failure and danger and frustration. In fact, quite a range of negativities every day which no amount of walking along the lake or ensconcement in the library can really ease very much. I meet people randomly on the street now, especially Tony and the raver, and I never know what to say, whether to snub them and walk by while they, they stare slack-jawedly into my back and perhaps even mouth my name incredulously, whether to come right out and tell them not to bother me anymore, or sometimes in moments of either lucidity or dementia, embracing them literally and figuratively, wel welcoming humans into my world as a method of assuagement instead of attempting to leave it all. But a trip, a trip. I scour the map on my wall and immediately alight on Victoria, the appeal of the island, of distance, of mountains, and more temperature, temperate weather. Before I'm about to click the final button online for the reservations, I think about my meager budget, the inadvisability of spending $500 when I have so little money and so few prospects of earning any more. I have my index finger poised a full 10 seconds, 15, half a minute above the mouse, and oh what a pitter pat it is when I finally click and the system churns for what seems like hours before finally telling me that all is set. Tension, increased tension, and then release and relief of a sort. It seems like an auspicious beginning somehow for my six days out west. The attentive reader will have noticed that I have more or less abandoned the economical manner of living on which I expounded so self-righteously earlier. The reason has been partly necessity and partly a developing reluctance to subject myself to privations when I am in the midst of a murder investigation. A quibbler, such as I used, used to be in my own full-fledged academic days, might look askance at my use of necessity here. A trip is necessary? Of course it isn't, but all I am trying to say is that I have half decided and half just fallen into the habit of living a relatively regular life, with meals out and new clothing and, yes, the occasional trip. Another necessity-related factor? Where on earth did I learn to write like this? I might cite as my recent decision calculation that I may not need to survive for a whole two years in this quiet little burg after all, and so even though I have no plans to start spending wildly, yet I can land myself somewhere between normalcy and indulgence. I notice myself tending toward vagueness and unconcern as we sit on the tarmac at Pearson in Toronto, waiting for the plane to go through its final checks before taking off for Victoria. The make and model of the plane, the time difference between the two cities, the duration of the flight, nothing occurs to me and nothing seems to matter very much. I'm not sure whether this is a good or a bad sign. Quote, insert the flat metal fitting into the buckle, unquote, she says, at the front of the plane, holding the whole apparatus aloft and making me wonder for a brief moment whether it should go around my head instead of my hips. And what exactly is a fitting, anyway? She blathers on, it goes to a French recording, the captain says something authoritative, and we are soon in the air, and I feel myself whisking away from everything 
on my mind. It's been nearly two years since I've flown anywhere, and as I settled back in my seat with my feet stretched out and my arms finding a comfortable home in the armrests, I think about the many times I flew around the continent for conferences and meetings when I was at TU. The reminiscence brings a twinge of sadness for the missed variety and, st and stunting of my academic development, and so I literally shake the thought out of my head and sink even further back for a nap. My current line of what one might call work assails me while I am out, and I dream of knives and guns and wounds of all shapes and descriptions, women lying around on blood-soaked carpets and men being pulled from the lake. I awake with a start, and I am not sure whether the moaning scream I heard was part of the dream or not. I turn my head tentatively towards the man next to me. He smiles and says, You are having a good one. And I can only furrow my brow awkwardly in response and turn back to something more pleasant than murderous terror. I've come prepared, bringing along an odd little collection called Ten by Ten, that is, ten short stories by ten, as they call it, up-and-coming, exciting new writers who will shock your socks off. That's what the blurb shouts it, a little desperately. Even more interesting, especially when the pleasures of flight begin to wane, is a promising-looking book, new book on the history of the QWERTY keyboard from its first use in typewriters over a hundred years ago to its continued dominance in the 21st century. I've read this book's blurbs with a slight twinge of nostalgic regret, of course, as the topic reminds me of my own aborted research and the curtailment of personal development which I so unfairly endured. The man next to me says something, and I hesitate to look over at him again for fear that he was talking to me. Pardon? Business or pleasure? Why you headed to Victoria? I did not and do not want to get into any of this, and I consider making up some bogus story, as I've had to do several times with the raver. My hearing is bad. My English is not so good. You understand? I seem to have been dropped here through the portal of some other dimension, and I have absolutely no idea what the hell you're talking about or what this clackety metal machine is doing here ten kilometers above the ground, and pleasure, I manage. Just taking a little time off. Hey, me too. Work can get to you, am I right? Right? Anyways, off to visit my... And on he goes, and I stop paying attention, instead devoting all my energy to seeming like I am paying attention. It is an effort. And what do you plan to do when you are in the city, I hear him saying, and at that point, no alternative seat possible on this full flight, no means of escape, I contrive an illness. Doctors say I should limit talking to an absolute minimum. And my last raspy half-sentence to him is an apology. He says he understands, and for a brief moment I worry that he's interrupted my situation as permission for him to do all the talking. But no, thankfully, he returns to a magazine, and after I watch him flip to an article about back pain or foie gras or the imminent rapture or whatever it is, I sink a little lower in my seat, rest my head near the window, and start to watch the world go by. Victoria is one of those cities in which I've never felt comfortable. Nothing to do with danger, just that it feels like an undecided, unsettled city, and it leaves me a little unsettled as well. It's a movie set in one part of town, the ocean in another part, quaint side streets with ethnic restaurants here, and deserted post-apocalyptic industrial burbs over there. 
Every time I go there, I always feel compelled to drive somewhere else, head up the island to Tofino, or make the crossing to Vancouver. I'm outside a Thai restaurant called Tia, T-H-I-A, and my eyebrows go halfway up at the crude and obvious typo before I realize that it's intentional, a cachet by way of bad orthography. The place is well lit and charmingly decorated with a combination of Western and Asian Azane? pieces. I'm already seated at a window table when Leonard walks up to me. I stand up and, and I'm unfortunately too distracted by the napkin that falls from my lap onto the floor to devote much effort to the hug. Listen, Andrew, he says, I have a favor to ask you. Yes? I'm a little tired of eating out these days and I wonder whether you wouldn't mind just coming over to my place. We could grab a cab and be there in 10 minutes. You haven't ordered yet, have you? No, I haven't, and, and sure, that sounds fine. I tell the waiter that we are leaving after all, and I have to resort to a lie about an emergency. She's barely breathing to bring it all home. His house is a lovely-looking brick thing in an equally lovely neighborhood. I sink into a luxurious leather armchair, and Leonard goes to get us drinks. I think sadly of how odd it is to be here with him, about how unusual it is for me to feel a strong connection to any person these days. In better days at Toronto U, where he was a professor of comparative literature, he was one of the main delights in being there at all, but after his retirement move and move out west, everything deteriorated. I'd never quite been sure why he decided to retire early anyway. Toronto U is one of those more progressive and forward-thinking schools which doesn't feel compelled to enforce mandatory retirement and thereby lose its most experienced faculty members only to save a few dollars. Andrew, I hear? Oh, sorry. Listen, Leonard, it's excellent to see you. Retirement seems to be treating you well. I have my days. Have your days? You don't mean that you're regretting it for some reason. He looks up. Oh no, quite the opposite. It's wonderful not so much to be away from the work, the scholarship. Some days I miss that, actually. But being away from the politics and the other bullshit, well, that's a relief, frankly. He smiles. It's fascinating to hear you say that. We were good friends then, still are. But I never knew at the time that the political shenanigans bothered you or were something you were even aware of. I tried not to think about it at the time or talk about it much. You know, Leonard says, you never did fully explain to me why you ended up leaving. If I recall correctly, you talked about disagreements and a mutual decision to leave and all of that, but what really happened? It is my turn to smile this time. Well, I'm not sure whether it is a very long story or a very short and simple one. Give me the medium version, he says. It takes me about five minutes and I do attempt some degree of obje objectivity allowing that I should not have gotten quite so angry that time, admitting that sometimes I was just trying to disrupt the departmental meetings, but I do reaffirm to him the maltreatment I experienced. Wow, he says when I am done and while I look down. The evening proceeds, I have to say, with some tepidity after that. I really am not sure of the reason. I do feel a connection to Leonard, and I'm not merely flattering myself and saying that I believe the feeling is mutual. But there's something perhaps about the separation of time and place that simply attenuates any, any relationship, however true or intense it might have been. 
There are some awkward silences and even a good 45 minutes where we are reduced to watching some very loud and inane television until ultimately Leonard rescues us by professing to be tired. He leads me to my room and I am soon asleep. I don't know how much time elapses, it seems like very little, but there's a knock on the door. Leonard, I say, still not quite awake. It's neither morning nor night. There's been a bit of a... I got a call just now and it looks like my brother in Calgary has had a stroke. I had to fly out today to be with him and his family. It nearly killed him, Janice said. I shudder selfishly first, wondering what exactly it is I have to do and where I have to go not to be surrounded with death. I'm very sorry to hear that, I manage eventually, now sitting up in bed. Is there anything I can do? You know, he says, and I hope this is not an imposition, but it would be good if you could stay here in the house for a few days. I mean, I know you were staying anyway, but I'd like to have someone here even when I am gone. It'll probably only be for a few days, and if it seems like it's going to be longer than that, I'd call. It's perfect, and I agree. For a minute, I wonder if I am dreaming. I've got a cab waiting outside, so I'll just give you a call when I'm in Calgary. Thanks for this. Everything you need should be here. You'll be comfortable. And with that, he's gone from the doorway. Presently, I hear muffled voices at a trunk, and then a door close and car tires squealing slightly. I sink back to sleep, really dreaming this time. I find it quite disorienting several hours later after I've had my fill of sleep and am padding around in another person's house when he's not there. It feels like burgling, and I half expect the police to come crashing through the door, finally catching me just as the toast pops and I am dishing the scrambled eggs out onto a plate. In fact, it is all quite idyllic. I walk around inspecting the place like it is a new house I've just bought or a hotel I am staying at for a while. It's immaculate and homey at the same time, unpretentious but also not cluttered with the detritus that accompanies people who cannot move to a new house without dragging most of their old possessions with them. I hear music outside and when I look out the small window above the sinks in the kitchen I can see two cars, one an old white sports car with the radio blaring and two young girls in tartan skirts dancing and smoking and the other a new black sedan with two older women in the front seat, one of them crying. I treat myself to a quick but wholesome breakfast, fresh grainy bread, strawberry jam from England, and head out the door. Leonard, even in his haste, has left me my own set of keys, including the one to his car. I hesitate only slightly, and then having calculated the likelihood that I would ever have this opportunity again, I unlock it, eschew the seat belt, and fire the motor up. The dancing girls glance over at me for only the briefest moment and then, finding me a lackluster attraction, resume their more rhythmic lives. As I pass the woman crying, I slow down like a crude rubbernecker on the highway after a collision. Her friend is handing her a tissue and neither of them, absorbed in their own sorrow administration, has time for me. I head for the public library, partly for the joy of experiencing another city's organization of knowledge, but acknowledging to myself that I will likely poke around in the murder section as well. Never mind, there is still enough of a vacationary feel about the impulse that I give in to my tendencies as usual. I'm disappointed to see that the emphasis seems to be on things other than books, 
The DVD checkout area is bustling. The clerks who are sorting them for the eager patrons wear gloves as though they were preparing for surgery. And alas, the aforementioned murder section is serviceable but not impressive and has nowhere near the breadth and depth of that in the Nosting Library. There's a long lineup at the internet stations and so I just leave. Back in the car, I start to feel odd. I pull out of the excellent parking space I'd snagged and in the midst of this bustling provincial capital, I realize that I feel safer than I do in my adopted little Nosting. There's a kind of niceness here that used to exist in Nosting before the murder started. All problems seem minor. The girl with a piece of duct tape on her cut heel instead of a band-aid, the flagman at the construction site who is a bit ashamed of how easy hard labor is, the latte waitress who mock cries and tells me she was starting to panic because she couldn't match my order to the little number at my table. Still there is something about the place that creeps me out. Must stop watching those teen television programs while I am here. A bit defeatedly, I head back to Leonard's place, a safe haven, until I plan my next move. I misjudge the house as I am heading down the darkened street and so inadvertently turn into someone else's driveway. The couple in the wrong house initiate a suburban all-systems alert. The man is at the living room window peering out just enough to see who the intruder is, but not so much that he exposes any more of his coordinates than he already has or that the enemy has already gleaned. The wife is at the side door, the light goes on, and I am expecting that she is the one who will do something, a warning shot, a shaking fist. But when I back out and am headed to my true destination, they have apparently deactivated the alert and returned to the cocoon. I drive around the block a couple of times when I realize that they are Leonard's right next door neighbors, partly not to frighten them with the proximity of the threat, but partly for my own peace of mind. I eventually sail nicely into the correct driveway, turn off the engine, and head back into the house. The answering machine is blinking, and I check the messages as Leonard has instructed me to. The first one is from him. His brother has died, and after a couple of days to take care of things, he should be back in Victoria, and would I mind staying in town until he does? I do, really, but what choice does one have? The second message is from a neighbor, perhaps the skittish one whose driveway I was just in, asking if those sausages of his which were in Leonard's freezer are getting in the way, and if they are, are, he is willing to come over and pick them up. I am not daft enough to miss the purpose of this call, and I will make sure not to eat his precious sausages. There's another message about some kind of festival with 800 pies, and the last one from a husky-voiced female talking about a gift that's fun to sit on and ending, I think you know what I mean. I truly do not, nor do I want to learn. I get myself a glass of water from the fridge and settle into a cushy black leather armchair. I ruminate again, even in this domestic comfort. These thoughts never desert me. I ruminate again on how death follows me around. Granted, Leonard's brother was down by God and not by a serial killer. But I pine now and again for some extended period of time which is not punctuated by one mortality or another. I remember now some of the stories which Leonard told me about his brother, though his name escapes me, Ronaldo or something like that. A big man, apparently, although I have no idea whether that is a factor in the incidence of stroke. 
Sad to say, but I am better informed on natural, on unnatural rather than natural causes. A younger brother, as I recall, and with an odd phobia which Leonard shared with me one evening, Ronaldo couldn't bear to see the inner workings of any building he was in. He visited Leonard at his rather ramshackle apartment in Toronto once, and the medics had to be called after he opened the closet door of the guest room and found a mess of ductwork and wiring there, the result of a renovation project which Leonard's, Leonard's landlord had dragged out for months. Leonard was watching television in the living room when he suddenly heard a shriek and then a thud, the latter being Ronaldo falling to the floor. Leonard rushed to the bedroom and found him in a lump, his head bleeding from contact with the dresser on the way down. I get a call from Leonard asking me to pick him up at the airport the next day. As is generally the case when I am about to lose something, even something which I am no longer sure I want anymore or have ever wanted, I pine for this house and this city all the next day. I get up and take a drive up to Shawinigan Lake where it is still very dark enough to envelop me if I turned off the headlights. I stop at the West Side Market, not open yet, but the rancid smell of yesterday's and perhaps many months French fries still inhabiting the otherwise crisp, clean air. A couple of hours later, the day underway for other humans now, I am in the English properties, all those quaffed housewives tootling around in various expensive SUVs while the Filipina help walks the little dog and the black help waiting at the bus stop after her shift is over. I return through Leonard's house exhausted with the intensity and number of the sensations, not quite sure what I should do. A warm shower at first and then adjusting the faucets till it's tepid, cool, cold, and coming out of that I do feel refreshed. On the way to the airport, I find myself humming some inane song I have picked up somewhere like a virus. I park in the temporary parking and scramble across to the airport. I'm running late with no excuse other than dawdling. I check the screen for arrivals and run again, and as I run up breathlessly, I see that Leonard is there already and is sitting off to the side with his suitcase. I'm very sorry, I say as I rush up to him. He smiles weakly, and I am a little shocked at how tired he looks. I imagine that the fact of her brother's death, along with the hasty arrangements, all added up to a severe lack of sleep. It's no problem, he says. Thanks for coming. I have some difficulty finding the car, and we go up and down several rows before Leonard spots it. Seated comfortably and headed back to the house, I first try to engage him in conversation, but his answers are short and at first I worry that I have done something wrong or that he has miffed at me for not knowing where I had parked the car when evidently he wanted to go home and go to bed. But no, he's just tired, and so I, have the so I let the silence just sit there like another passenger. It feels good, this proximity to another person, this slice of intimacy, but without the need to dirty it up with chatter. I weave my way confidently through the streets on the way back to the house. At first I am worried that Leonard is monitoring my choice of directions, but I glance over to see that his head is pointing out the passenger side window, and I, even, I think he may even be dozing occasionally. When I pull into the driveway, he quick, quickly opens the car door. I retrieve his luggage from the trunk and we proceed into the house. I'm kind of exhausted, he says, when we are in the foyer. I hate to be rude, but I really have to get some sleep. 
Is it okay if we just catch up in the morning? Of course. I watch him as he pads down the hall to his bedroom. He's left his suitcase here, and I can see that he simply turns out, turns on the light, gets undressed, turns off the light, and then gets into bed. I trace his steps to the entrance to his room and gently close the door. In the morning, we don't have much chance for catching up, as I have to head off to the airport and Leonard is still not quite revived. I insist that he not drive me, that I can take a cab, and he relinquishes my point easily. I hug him with some affection as I head out the door, and as we disengage I, and I am still close to him, his wan pallor is striking. In the cab, on the way to the airport, I review some of the fleeting memories of what I did. I see a pier. I see a tiny car parked in a suburban driveway. I see a woman running alone whom I asked for directions and who did not just slow down and run on the spot, but simply stop next to the car an image which arouses feelings in me that I have not experienced for quite some time. I wander in something of a daze when I am in the airport, half forgetting where I've come from and where I am. Victoria, yes, and Nosting, yes, Nosting by way of Toronto. The people seem to be not so much milling about waiting for their own flights, but there to act as a skillfully choreographed obstacle course. I read fitfully and finally plop down in my seat, 19B with relief. Why did I ever leave home?